This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply, if rated PG. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to another episode of New Books and Critical Theory, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm your host, Louisa Han, and I'm really pleased to be joined today by Mary Louise Pratt to find out more about, about her new book, Planetary Longings, which has just come out with Duke University Press. Mary Louise Pratt is Professor Emerita at NYU, where she taught in the Department of Spanish and Portuguese and the Department of Social and Cultural Analysis. Her research includes work on Latin American literature and Latin American studies, comparative literature, linguistics, literary theory, postcolonial studies, feminist and gender studies, anthropology and cultural studies. Her publications include Imperial Eyes, Travel Writing and Transculturation, and Women, Culture and Politics in Latin America, co-authored with the West Coast Sofa Collective. Her most recent work as a critic and scholar includes reflections on neoliberalism and culture, language and globalization, and contemporary indigenous politics and thought. Welcome to the show, Mary Louise, and thanks so much for taking the time to tell us more about your work. It's a pleasure to be with you. Thank you for having me. Great. So just to introduce the book, which I recently read and very much enjoyed, uh, Planetary Longings is, in essence, a series of reflections on the heightening urgency of the ecological and socio-political crises the world currently faces, filtered through the history and cultural specificities of the Americas. I have to confess that uh, Latin American cultural studies is not necessarily an area I'm well-versed in, as may be the case for some of our listeners, and this is part of the reason why I was keen to engage with your book and open it up to a wider audience. Yeah. Um, I was really interested to see the ways in which the book weaves explorations of the particular and sometimes sort of the personal or the anecdotal together with the more universal to explore themes including modernity, colonialism, post-colonialism, neoliberalism and indigeneity. Um, Naturally, these topics are quite far-reaching and I think the book will be of interest to many scholars in the humanities and beyond who would find your essays to contain viable insights about our current sort of incredibly precarious conjunctural moments. So I think it'd be great to use our time today to tease out some of your overarching arguments while paying attention to some of the fascinating literary texts and historical case studies you examine throughout, um, some of which I'll definitely be adding to my reading list. So with the kind of expansiveness of your book in mind, my first question is, how did you come to write it and what were your primary aims in doing so? Thank you. Um, well, thank you for that characterization of the book. Yeah, I think one of the that you capture very well the fact that this is not a book about Latin America. It's a book about the world, kind of thought from Latin America or imagined from Latin America, or from the Americas more generally. And um, the book, uh, it it kind of it, it's the other thing I wanted to say about it. I think is that it's a book of essays which is a form of academic work that I appreciate a great deal. Um, I love the essay form and um, the book of essays 
that is constructed around a set of sort of common preoccupations. Um, I really, my role models are books like essayists like Clifford Gertz in The Interpretation of Cultures or Homi Baba in Location of Culture or Spivak in Another World, Gibson Graham um, in The End of Capitalism as We Knew It. This, so I like the essay form a great deal, especially because it is so teachable. And when I write essays, I really think a lot about the cl- classrooms and being able to, to teach these. The essay is a form that tries to not to put an end to a conversation by resolving things, but it tends to tries to open up a conversation and move it forward and enrich it. So that's kind of the um, form that this book takes. The book hinges on, um, it, it really began around the year 2000 and it hinges on what I call, have come to call the millennial pivot. And it tries to capture a sense that of the epical shift that happened between the 1990s and the first, the last decade of the the previous millennium and the first decade of this one. And so I try to kind of trace in the first 10 or so chapters that, that epical shift and what the nineties look like now from here, what we were thinking then and what, what changed. And, and, you know, the pivot, the millennial pivot has a lot of, one of the characteristics of it is the shift from um, uh, the shift from the global to the planetaries, hence the title planetary longings. And that shift from from the from globality to planetarity was one of the is one of the sort of hallmarks of the the um, epical mark the marker that I see I'm seeing there. And that also goes with the shift from what I call the post to the geo. And the 90s were characterized by the, the prefix post was kind of the hallmark of 90s thinking. We were post everything. We were post humanist and we were post modern and post colonial and and post historical. And and I was always fascinated by that post prefix because it seemed to unable to it didn't it was a it was about pastness, not futurity. It didn't generate a story of where we could be going. And so it, it was kind of a registering continuously sort of endings of things. And when with the shift of the millennium and the shift towards the geo um, and the planetary, we are in, um, we're out of that post phase and we're in a full-fledged crisis of futurity that we are now engaging with in, in, in ways that we were not in the 90s. So I'm very fascinated by that shift from post to geo. So now we're having geo-humanities and I'm writing about geolinguistics and there's geo-historical and so, so planetarity is kind of built into the intellectual project in a really um, interesting new ways. And I think the post uh, really had to do in the 90s with the uh, final kind of exhaustion and dissolution of the grand narrative of modernity. And that's where there's a long, one of the long, the first chapter of the book is about called Modernity's False Promises that kind of traces um, that um, that collapse and that, and, and kind of gives an anatomy of it. And um, I think that was sort of underwriting it, that narrative just stopped being able to generate credible visions of the future in the era of free ta- sort of ruthless free trade um, capitalism. So that to me is where the 90s got its kind of dead end post feel and a crisis of, you know, the, as we approached the millennium, it felt like a crisis of futurity and a crisis of knowledge, knowing that we needed, there's going to be new knowledge needed and we didn't have it yet. We didn't yet quite know how to get it. So that's sort of the axis, the pivot of, of the book. Yeah, so I'll focus on a little bit on this millennium question now. So, you know, in the, in the introduction of your book, you kind of open with this description of a Peruvian anti-capitalist sect that you encountered while visiting a restaurant. Is that is that right? Yeah, in Cusco. Yeah, <laughs> yeah it's great. I was, I was really interested to see how you sort of treat this um, essentially millenarian group um, which is concerned with like this fascinating mix of extraterrestrials and anti-consumerism as kind of reflective of wider anxieties about futurity, as you say, and knowledge production around this turn of the millennium. Um, so this in your discussion sort of surrounding indigenous world making, 
um, kind of struck me perhaps as maybe a counterpoint to a more sort of Western hegemonic narrative about the millennium that was hanging on to maybe a kind of end of history idealism. So I was, I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about the significance of the millennium for Latin American and indigenous thought specifically, particularly sort of regarding the idea of planetarity that serves as a kind of through line for, for the book's essays. Mm-hmm. Well, I, I think... Um... In terms of, yes, that wonderful Peruvian sect called Alpha y Omega, um, a lot, the book, my, this book often, often draws on popular culture to, and to, and it, I have a very strong conviction that popular culture often is always registering what is happening in, in ways that are often can be allegorical and mythical and speculative, but it, it is definitely popular culture is a source for me of insight into how people are experiencing the larger questions in the world. And sects like Alpha y Omega, you, you can just see there that the exhaustion of the narrative of modernity and what, uh, um, uh, the expectation of modernity that that whole idea of progress that was being lived very fully in Latin America after World War II isn't functioning anymore, isn't explaining the world anymore. And you got all kinds of um, uh, in popular culture mythologies. People will probably remember the mythology of the um, organ organ theft, a stolen travelers having their kidneys stolen and. Uh, there was a whole lot of popular mythology that was registering the kind of depredations of neoliberalism in and of free market capitalism, what it was doing to um, the general populations. And this was true in Africa and other parts of the world as well as in, as in um, Latin America. So I was very interested in how the popular imagination was formulating this predicament that, that was happening, the kind of mass immiseration in the 90s across Latin America, falling wages and, and kind of an inability to construct aspirations for the future. So um, that was sort of one of the millennial um, mindsets that I was trying to study. And in particular, in terms of indigeneity, yes, the 90s in Latin America, but also worldwide, in the 90s, indigenous people became what um, one Bolivian theorist called strategic populations in the struggle against, in the confrontation with multinational capital, because um, one of the features of the 90s in the world economy was the tremendous invasiveness of especially lumber and mining companies into zones where they had not operated before, into zones that were indigenous peoples had a relative degrees of autonomy and and so they became really strategic populations in um, make demand, in resisting and fighting against this stuff and making demands on states to respond to their interests. And so in Latin America in particular in the 90s, there was a, the first kind of hemispheric-wide uh, mobilization of indigenous people. And there was, and this was partly in response to the Colombian, the quincentennial of Columbus in 1992. But you got, for the first time, a real hemispheric mobilization of indigenous people. They put in, there was a big meeting in Ecuador and Quito. There was a big declaration put out. And at the same time, you got the UN responding, also creating the Declaration of the Rights of Indigenous People um, after years of debate. And... Uh, and so this, there, there was kind of this political social movement happening. And then I think the pivot is that in the early 20th century, um, from 1999 on, indigenous thought became, has become a key player, kind of, I speak about it as transforming the intellectual commons. And so indigenous thinkers are now, playing a very strategic role in the in the creation of the thought around an ecological crisis and in they are a strategic source of um, alternative language and alternative worldviews but that and and what's interesting about indigenous thought that body of indigenous thought that is burgeoning right now in many parts of the world is that it is very um, it is completely extroverted. Indigenous thinkers are trying to 
are creating knowledge to be intended to be disseminated across the world to intended to produce the next grand narrative that we can all uh, because we're all in this together and if if anyone's either no one's going to survive or people are going to survive so so that's where the through line of indigeneity and the way the millennial pivot works um, along that is very has one of the threads in the book that comes up a lot yeah that idea of a extroversion I think is one of the sort of key nodal points that I thought was really um yeah interesting so um just kind of circling back this idea of modernity in your first essay you discuss the use of modernity as this category of sort of eurocentric intellectualism exploring its sort of contradictory teleological and obfuscatory elements that kind of aim to absorb um, kind of those on the those on the periphery. So, could you explain the problems with this standard account and touch on some of the examples of periphery literary, peripheral literary um, and cultural experiments you explore in the book that attempt to sort of subvert its neo-colonial relationality? Okay. Well, thank you. You put that much better than I did, actually. Thank you very much. <laughs> Uh, yeah, what I what I um, I did a kind of anatomy of of um, in in the late nineties. I started doing a kind of an anatomy of modernity, and it um, trying to as it exhausted itself, trying to figure out how what from the postmodern position, how could we, what did what could modernity look like to us? What could we understand that we didn't understand before? And you know when I what I call the standard account account of modernity is that that modernity's myth about itself that it kind of sui generis surges up in Europe and then spreads out to the rest of the world in a kind of diffusion, a civilizational diffusion that is thought about as is imagined as quite natural because the obvious superiority of this civilizational model just propels it of its own accord. And that kind of um, that mo- that myth of modernity, it, it kind of held a lot of people in place in the world that were in in outside Europe. That narrative gave many people a lot of a great deal of meaning to their lives, and many intellectuals believed in the narrative that our goal is modern modern to modernize where we are to bring and propagate modernity here in the ex-colonial world, and. Um, believing in the idea that at some point we will all be modern and uh, equally modern, and that will be the high civilizational state to be achieved. So that was a very compelling story for not just elites, for everybody, for a long time. Um, J- James Ferguson the um, is an anthropologist who works on Africa, an Africanist, and he did a study in Zambia, wrote a book called Expectations of Modernity, and just described the way those expectations informed life at every possible sphere and every level. And then when those expectations evaporated, when um, s- suddenly, um, the, again, this new kind, new form of predatory capitalism transformed everything. And um, it, so, um, so that was the, so I wanted to think about, well, what would a relational account of modernity look like? Meaning, an account that began with the fact that European modernity was a result of its drawing in from other parts of the world, what it drew in from its colonial uh, colonies, from the colonial world, reprocessed it and then surged, then absorbed it. And that relational account that modernity has coloniality at its heart, um, that it requires that that system of absorbing from elsewhere, that that was going to give a different account of modernity. And so that was sort of the the general uh, principle propelling the study. And then I kind of just do a sort of fairly, it's kind of an interesting anatomy to me of the way the narrative of modernity functions by having all kinds of different narratives of origin. And you can just pick whichever one you want, depending on the argument you want to make that sort of, um, looseness of the modernity narrative is to me very was very strategic in holding it in in place. 
And then, I, yes, so I look at, well, what happens, what actually happens to modernity when it lands in Latin America, these principles and aspirations, and um, enters into contradiction with the world that is there. It enters into a completely different world where in the ex-colonies, the, um, you know, modernity always has to have an other in order to know itself. There has to be a non-modern other of some kind. And in the ex-colonies, those non-modern others are cohabiting the space with the moderns. And it's a whole different configuration of, of the, that is completely unlike Europe. And so what results is going to be completely different. So in the literary part of that uh, chapter, I talk about how in modern literature, what's considered modernism in Latin America, which is in the 20, teens, 20s, 30s, the literature that's produced there is very experimental, very modern, but it's also combines both urban and rural projects. And the rural is the site of literary, of all kinds of incredible literary expect, um, experimentation in Latin America. That's very different from the way the way European literature is configured in that period. So that was an, one example of the where liter, the what literature showed how it showed the difference yeah and there's, there's some examples of sort of literary experiments that I'll be I'll be looking out uh, looking up for sure and adding to my reading list because it all looks really fascinating um so in the next couple of chapters of the book you examine migration uh, mobility stasis and the idea of you know unfettered flow that represents sort of another of the fictions of modernity um, and as you know, there's a significant difference between, say, the movement of uh, tourists through a given region and the movement of labourers. Um, so could you provide listeners with an overview of how you address the politics of movement um, in the book, particularly in relation to tourism, freedom, unfreedom and indigeneity sort of within the neoliberal order? Mm-hmm. Yes, well, it was... Um... In the 90s, mass tourism was um, the largest industry in the world after the drug trade. And uh, so that form of mobility had just expanded itself at an enormous rate. At the same time in the 90s, we started seeing uh, the forms of now desperate, kind of desperate, economically driven out-migration from what was used to be the, called the third world into the first. And uh, I was watching the way um, the, in the 90s we, that our attention started to really be called to, to that, those forms of migration. I have this principle I call thinking through mobility that I talk about in the book where what I find is that if, if, if people are moving, if people are turning up somewhere where they weren't before, it's always, uh, it always to me is a clue to look, ask what is happening, that something has shifted, um, that has set people in motion. And I always analyze mobility as a relation between people who go and people who stay. And it always is that. And, and the, um, so you had this, kind of dialectic between basically kind of north to south tourism and south to north migration um, and uh, the kind of colonial world imploding back on Europe and and North America. And um, I just, uh, that was kind of very enabling for me to think about um, how, uh, how people were, how belonging and unbelonging were getting redefined and it certainly provided a counter narrative to the, as you mentioned, the metaphor of flow, which was, which was neoliberal globalization's kind of favorite metaphor for itself was going to be the free flow. And there was no way you can describe as flow the people drowning in the Mediterranean in those boats. It's still happening, right? Flow is not the right um, word. Uh, and uh, so there's a critique in in the in the second chapter of that metaphor of flow and all the things that it distorts um, and conceals. And then I, I um, th- there are two chapters on this question of mobility, and I end with um, uh, 
because uh, mobility, ha- I end with a, a section on the Zapatista movement in um, Mexico, which of course burst out in 1994. And the way that they um, were, conducted some incredibly radical experiments with going and staying and hosting and traveling and uh, that were that were really defining um, a new forms of citizenship and belonging and, and articulating their claims as indigenous people so they did not see their their indigeneity as as irrevocably tied to a certain place. They felt like it was a, they had a claim on the whole nation. So they sent delegations all over Mexico and where places where people had never seen indigenous people before and certainly places where the indigenous Zapatistas had never been before. And there was just kind of a whole re, very interesting reclaiming of belonging and citizenship through the movement of the body in the national and international space. So those there are two studies that kind of um, take up try to look at this whole this whole millennial transition through that question of mobility. Yeah, so let's dig into something a little bit more specific now to get a better better idea of how your your frameworks operate throughout the book. Um, in your fourth chapter, you examine a number of novelistic experiments that serve as allegories for the crisis of futurity and the kind of inscrutability of that crisis, I suppose. Um, I was really interested in their treatment of sexual and gender politics, particularly given the proliferation of gay and uh, lesbian and feminist activism in the 90s. Um, Could you give our audience a brief introduction to some of the texts you explore um, and how you link them to the socio-political sort of valences of the neoliberal millennial moment. Sure. So uh, that chapter resulted from um, an experiment that I conducted in, uh, I was living in Mexico in 1998-99 and thinking, watching what was going on around me. It was post-NAFTA and I was in Western Mexico and Guadalajara, and I was watching the transformation of of society. I was watching the traditional agriculture, small-scale farming breaking down and people having to migrate north. I was watching all kinds of things changing. And um, I decided to read, I'm just going to read all the novels I can get my hands on that have appeared in the 1990s. And so, I, and I will just see what what is the, what do I see in these books? What are they telling me about where these where the writers are are how the writers are articulating this period of change at the end of the millennium? And I ended up I just read until I started to see patterns, and it was kind of like this feeling that you know I, the knowledge maker is not I'm not sitting there with a a lamp, a helmet with a lamp shining light on things. I'm sitting there in the dark waiting to be able to see something, you know? And so it was really, it was fun to do it. Very interesting. And I, so I'm, the patterns I discovered are discussed in, in a set of five novels in that uh, chapter that were, that were all published in 1994, 95. And they are, um, one called um, Beauty Parlor by a Mexican-Peruvian writer named Mario Bellatin. There's another called um, Los Vigilantes by Diamela El Tit, and I forget the title in English. You may be able to find it. Um, another is Tula Oscuridad by Mayra Montero, who is a Dominican writer. And um, another is called Plata Quemada, Money to Burn by Ricardo Pilla. And in these novels... And, um, oh, and Fernando Vallejo, La Virgen de los Sicarios, The Virgin of the Assassins by Fernando Vallejo. And I found several of the patterns that emerged in these novels that were really quite distinctive and unlike, that were new. Where, first of all, the thing you mentioned, there is a breakdown of relations between male and female people. And, and what the form it takes is that women, female characters, female bodies spin out of the story and you're left with a story that's just about males, male bodies. 
So there's something, some that way, and sometimes that story is homo, homoerotic. Sometimes it's fraternal. Um, it has different configurations. The AIDS crisis is there. Bayatine's novel Beauty Parlor is about a, uh, a beauty salon, a guy who converts his beauty salon into a um, place for AIDS patients to go to die. And so, and it, so, and then it, it's, it's a, a discussion of his, yes, that whole process and the social transformation it involves. And uh, so the break, the, the polarization of male and female and the spinning off of women out of the narrative where they're out wandering the world um, they, and the, and the intensity, the male characters that are stuck in one claustrophobic place. So there's a, quite a reversal there. So there's that is one of the things that happens. Another is kind of apocalyptic um, uses of fire and flood. And um, there's, there's water and fire appear in kind of very apocalyptic forms. And the other thing that really fascinated me was in, in these novels is there appear structures of the, the structures appear that the narrators, the characters in the novel, know are important and interesting and are telling them something, but they are unable to decipher them. And that was just such an interesting, weird trope that was totally unique to this corpus of writing from the mid-90s. So, for example, in El Tid's novel, a single a mother, it's about a single mother kind of cooped up in a house with her son who is autistic or something like that. And he has a set of containers that he continually builds structures with. And she is can see that these containers, these structures are very meaningful and important and significant, but she has no idea what they mean. And she writes the boy's father over and over again about what he's doing with these containers. And, um, in uh, a, another novel by Cesar Aida, an Argentinian novelist, called um, the um, oh the um, not the ghetto um, La Villa in Spanish. Um, there's a, a detective is is a whole neighborhood that a, a barrio that a detective is supposed to figure out how the drug trade is operating there, and it's opaque to him. So this figure this 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 trope of figures of knowing who are confronting structures that they cannot decipher. To me, that was just such a millennial moment of like, we're heading, there's a future that requires knowledge I don't have and I, that, and it's going to be some structures that I don't understand. And the knowledge is already there in the child or in the inhabitants of the, of the ghetto. Um, Montero's novel is about two, a herpetologist who goes in search of the last, the last living uh, member of a species of frog, and and um, ends up being drowned by by a storm that's attributed to a goddess. So these these tropes that kept recurring in this corpus of novels just totally fascinated me as diagnostics of the predicament that the civilizational predicament that people saw themselves in, in the 90s. They are all very particular to the mid-90s when they appeared. Hmm. Um, so I'd like to return now to your book's focus on indigeneity and its generative potential um, in a futurological context. So that's the uh, the extroversion that you, you mentioned, I suppose. Um, could you expand on some of the, the radical potential that you identify in indigenous activism, particularly in relation to issues surrounding environmental degradation? Right. Well, I would go back to, um, yeah, that idea of being having become strategic populations rather than marginal populations. And it's, it's just very interesting how that happens because it's quite geographical. You know, an indigenous group becomes strategic when the lumber company arrives and wants permission to, to cut down its forests or the oil company arrives as we've had here in the U S and wants to put a pipeline across someone's somebody's land. And, um, and so, uh, 
it and then the and and what's what I think is one of the things that's shifted that's changed dramatically and partly it's through the United Nations. Uh, indigenous population have been brought together, and and our work have have are have created, if you like, um, kind of people, citizens, members of the group, mem- group members who are able to engage in these forums and and, and international um, uh, gatherings that work out plans, you know, collectively and and uh, pursue shared goals, and so um and indigenous it's it's. One of the things that I really realized when I thought about indigeneity is that it is a relational identity. That is that, as I like to put it, no one is indigenous until someone else shows up. You know, you can be a K'iche Maya person, but you're not an indigenous person until the Spaniards appear and you become that in relation to them. You become other in relation to them. And indigen- all the terms around indigene- indigeneity or First Nations or um, uh, Aboriginal are all about being there first, right? Who was there before? And being there first is the source of this certain kind of power and entitlement in the world um, that can be, is available to be, to be used in a certain way. So it's very, it's a kind of interesting uh, thing that indigeneity in that way is the product of coloniality <clears throat> and is the site of its of decolonization and of of uh, the the critique of coloniality and indigenous people um, you know the 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 um, power of the of an indigenous of indigeneity is, the continuity between who I am today and who I was before you guys showed up. And that, that connection back to an original Aboriginal identity and form and history and in, in, in the place is kind of the critical thread and the continuity of that thread is what keeps an indigenous group indigenous alive you know, and if you lose that thread, the group just is absorbed into the rest of the society around them. So it's, it's that whole way indigeneity is organized and the source of the power and the form of the power is really important. And of course, those are the, that connection back is a connection to pre-capitalist life ways, subsistence life ways, although not entirely. I mean, there were the biggest cities in the world were in the Americas in 1492, but that um, continuity back to pre to a non-capitalist pre-capitalist history is one of the threads that really, um, and then of course the territoriality of indigenous people, so that they have been able to, to the extent they've been able to uh, have an autonomous territorial face where place that presence where they can evolve life ways as they as they desire. That makes the source. It means that all, and it does mean that all kinds of non-capitalist knowledge exists, inhabits those spaces, and is now being made available to others by indigenous intellectuals themselves, um, as a way to try and indigenize the rest of the world. So that's sort of the dynamic that I'm trying to, that I'm looking at in in um, in in the in the book. Yeah, so in some ways, this kind of this increased scholarly interest in indigenous activism and sort of increased availability of indigenous scholarship sort of is parallel with this um, interest in an epochal category of the Anthropocene, which has come into increasingly common usage in recent years alongside variations like the Capitalocene or um, Donna Haraway's Cthulhu scene, which take slightly different approaches to ecological shifts. Um, you describe this era in terms of um, a so-called chronotope. Um, so could you describe what this means and its implications for planetary thinking? Yes. Well, Anthropocene was a really, was an example of, yes, the epical shift that I'm talking about. That term really came into what brought, came into the vocabulary with planetarity um, right around just after around to 2000, maybe a year or two before. 
And what I was interested in, in I, you know, partly when you have training in textual analysis, you do the and narrative analysis, you do these kinds of and anatomical exercises. And I'm like, what is the anatomy of this concept of Anthropocene? And what, what, uh, what is it enabling? And I, I real, I, I came to think about it as a concept in the way that Elizabeth Gross, the Australian philosopher defines concepts. And then as a chronotype in chronotope in the way that is defined by, um, the literary theorist Mihai Bakhtin, and for Bakhtin, the chronotope he he was analyzing the novel, novels, and he said the chronotope is that kind of conjunction of time and place in which it is there a history and, and geography of time and space in which a story unfolds, and the chronotope is kind of the the time space configuration in which a narrative is set and and through which a narrative can tell a society something about itself. And what fascinated me about the Anthropocene is that it's completely different from the Holocene. The previous, the Holocene is a concept that we structured looking back from the present to a remote past, sifting through the detritus and layers of archaeological um, debris to construct a story of the distant past. The Anthropocene is all about future. The future, it's it's all about the future. And what it 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 what it imagines is a future point in which someone looks back on this period and sifts through the detritus of this period and realizes what happened. And that someone if the anthropocentric story is correct, that someone will not be human. It will be some other subject of knowing because we will be gone. And the story that that person will learn from sifting through the debris is the story of what happened to us, right? And that story, so it's a totally different, the concept has a completely different function and configuration than the previous geological eras. And so I was just really interested in that futurological time-space configuration and um, it's kind of like what happens in the classic film Planet of the Apes. Do you remember where the, a, a crew returns to Earth after hundreds of years in space and they find it in, a, inhabited by apes who are slowly discovering how humans destroyed themselves? It's sort of that kind of configuration built into Anthropocene. And it's, yet it still it uses the anthropo. It still has humans at the center of the story, which is, uh, to me, a very a limitation of, of the term. Um, so that was what I was trying to just do a little anatomy of that concept and what it, what's the work it's doing for us, which is enabling a certain kind of apocalyptic imagining that is totally characteristic of the new millennium. That's the geo it's, um, and enabling it, um, in a way that doesn't quite displace humanism. (laughs) Mm, Yeah. Um, so moving from the Anthropocene to something more, a little bit more specific, just to zone in on uh, the chapter exploring authoritarianism and Chile, as I think this will be of you know great interest to readers given the country's history as this kind of experimental ground for neoliberal neoliberalism's architects, and um, of course due to sort of recent developments surrounding the presidency, some of which. I imagine, yeah, would have happened too recently even to be covered in this book. Um, so could you explain how your analysis of Chile's authoritarian history and its recent constitutional plebiscite relate to your wider arguments about neoliberalism and crises of futurity? Yes, thank you. Yeah, that um, uh, that essay was triggered in part by, in the summer of 2020, a tweet that came across my desk when someone said they were looking at the way the police were um, uh, attacking demonstrators in Seattle. And it said, we're looking at the Pinochetization of the United States. (laughs) And I thought, Oh, but um, so I think the longer I've lived in the United States, um, the more I've come to think that U S politics follow Latin American politics a lot and more so than Europe. And very often, if you're trying to understand what's going on politically in the U S you can learn as much or more by looking South as you can by looking East towards Europe. And, um, 
So um, when I was thinking, watching the rise of the right wing in the United States in response partly to the Obama presidency, and it took me back to um, authoritarianism in Chile in response to the Allende socialist government being elected in 72. And um, so it made sense to kind of think about putting those together and asking, you know, what the, the chapter in the book is called Lessons from Chile. What can we learn um, uh, from that experience? And uh, one of the things that to be learned um, is when you enter into it, it's not easy as easy to undo authoritarianism as it is to fall into it. And um, I was really studying there. Uh, the, the Pinochet was in power from 1973 till 1989, and the constitution that he put into effect is still in effect right now in Chile. And the in the summer of 2020, while we were demonstrating about George Floyd's murder, the Chileans were demonstrating to demand a new constitution. It took that long to get the state to respond to that demand. So 1973 to, to 20, well, it was 1980 that constitution was passed to 40 years of struggle. And so um, I was, so the lesson from Chile that I wanted to bring forward was how unbelievably long and hard the road back to democracy was for Chile. And in that, um, in that essay, I look at um, forms of forms of resistance that um, artists and intellectuals and writers undertook in Chile. I focus a lot on a particular novelist who appears m- multiple times in the book, whose name is Diamela El Tit, who I think is just the most brilliant, brilliant writer um, of our time. She's uh, her novels are incredible, and she, throughout the dictatorship, from the beginning to the end, was writing. Um, she also did experimental video work. She was in the, and she was, her work kind of does the anatomy of authoritarianism. And one of the things that it, it, it emphasizes or grasps is that everyone's psyche is transformed by this, um, including those who resist it, who are opposed to it. And to get out of, to make your way back to, out of that, that psychic configuration that the dictatorship, a dictatorship will put you in um, is, is difficult. It's painful and it's hard and it takes a long time. So a lot of that, um, it, that in, is the, a lot of the essays about her kind of anatomy of the dictatorship and its aftermath in her novels and about the um, campaign to restore democracy in Chile and to, um, create a subject, a new political subject who would be able to say no to a dictatorship. So that was kind of the, the lessons um, for Chile and of course uh, from Chile. And of course, there were a lot of interesting comparisons to be made between the figure of Trump and the figure of Pinochet and also interesting contrast. The Pinochet was uh, a figure that came into power, an authoritarian figure before, before social media, before the internet, um, in fact, most most Chilean homes didn't even have television when he came into power. Whereas Trump is a you know a product of the entertainment industry, so that that contrast is very real. Um, so that was kind of the yeah the point of lessons from Chile. <laughs> mm. So let's kind of shift focus slightly to the second half of the book now, which I think considers sort of in closer detail the role of the academy and different. Disciplinary practices in in knowledge production surrounding indigeneity and coloniality. Um, could you expand on how you address the somewhat fraught role of ethnographic research in the academy, its its contradictions, and the potential for more experimental kinds of ethnographic ethnographic writing to to generate valuable forms of knowledge in sort of our current planetary moment? Yeah. Thanks. Yes. Um, well, ethnography certainly went into crisis at the end of the <laughs> the end of the twentieth uh, century, and that that uh, there's an the essay on eth- on the ethnographer 
uh, ethnography um, is is it inaugurates the second part of the book, which, as you say, focuses on um, uh, indigeneity, coloniality, and decolonization. And that so that essay looks at some of um, both how class both classic ethnography's debt to travel writing, which of course Hart's takes back takes us back to the book I wrote in the '90s on travel writing. So it looks at how classic ethnography, what what classic ethnography draws from travel writing, even though it claims it has a tr- much superior authority. And then it looks at efforts by ethnographers to decolonize travel writing in the '90s and '80s and '90s, and um, what challenges that produced, and what kind of what kind of tropologies it it produced. So um, it. it it looks so that it kind of that's an examination sort of of how the coloniality as a force um, continued to influence ethnography. And that essay um, is kind of goes together with it is paired with one that follows it, which is um, about the ethnographer um, who uh, did fieldwork in Guatemala and produced a very um, aggressive attack on the indigenous um, writer and f- activist Rigoberta Menchu, where you see someone in the year 1999, 2000, rec- recuperating that ethnographic authority of the white male outsider, northerner, to, di- to, to, to dispel from the intellectual commons this figure, this indigenous figure who has taken up a conspicuous role there. And so it's kind of a companion, those two essays are kind of companion pieces to one another, um, looking at the mutations of ethnographic authority and um, the challenge represented to it by indigenous subjects and, and knowledge makers. And um, those two essays kind of are paired with a third one that is um, called uh, The Politics of Reenactment, that is uh, a similar analysis about a Spanish film crew. It's about a film made uh, called Tambien la Lluvia, or Even the Rain. I don't know if anybody's seen it. I, it's a very interesting film. I recommend it. Uh, and it's a film about a Spanish film crew that goes to Bolivia to film, uh, to make a film and the crew just confronts their own coloniality in its, in its millennial 2002 form. And, uh, so it's another one where the kind of ethnographic eye is, is problematized. Um, so those three essays are kind of, kind of go together as examinations of, this particular eye and how you can de- end the, the problematic of decolonization. Mm. So toward the end of the book, you explore what um, you call the futurology of independence and cast a kind of critical eye over the notion of independence as a kind of vital step in a teleological script of decolonization. Um, so could you explain how you reimagine independence in a way that doesn't adhere to this mold and touch on a couple of examples to sort of illustrate this. Yeah, sure. Thanks. Yeah. um, Independence is another of those, another moment uh, that where you have a crisis of futurity and um, it so happened that in 2010 was 2010 to 2020 was the 200 year anniversary of Latin Americans countries' independences. Most of the countries became independent between 1810 and 1820. And that bicentennial made all of us uh, think back. And and I was intrigued to look back and say, okay, from here I am in the second, in the new millennium, what, what what do we see now when we look back? And of course, I was thinking about this crisis of futurity stuff. And I realized that reading back to the thinkers who were trying to produce independence it was fascinating to see that nobody had any idea what what post-independence would look like, what the society would look like, what they wanted to build. People made, uh, so, you know, you read um, the people, the, the Bolivar and, and uh, Pedro Miranda going around uh, Europe 
trying to get support for independence for Latin American, for Spanish America's colonies. And they're articulating these incredible aspirations that have no relation to, that are completely fantastic. And I realized that, um, so was able to see partly because of we were li- had lived ourselves in this kind of semantic vacuum at the turn of the millennium where the narrative of modernity is gone and we don't know what the new story is. And likewise, the narrative of colonial oppression was going to be gone, but what was the new story going to be? And, um, and you had to really, uh, um, you had to be, you were the, the, the architects of independence were set in this, in this futurological stance where they're projected into a future, but it's a future they don't know what it will look like. It's a future whose contours towards lie below the horizon and or beyond the horizon. So I just, I got very interested in that predicament. And then I began tracing out. And in fact, there, of course, there was no script for independence. We look back and see a script, but at the time there was no script looking, looking ahead. And so what I discovered was that, in fact, decolonization did not took very took a great different forms. Independence was not kind of the natural move. So, in in Spanish America, many countries sought political independence from Spain, partly because Britain and France really wanted that to happen because they wanted to be able to have commercial presence in the Americas. But in the Philippines the decolonization project took an opposite um, direction. And the people who wanted to decolonize wanted to seek closer relationships to Spain. They wanted to become a province of Spain and be completely integrated into Spanish, the Spanish liberal state. And so the decolonizing move was a closer proximity to the mother country, the colonial power, not the distancing from it. And um, so I was fascinated analyzing that distinction and that the different ways that that, that played out between the Philippines and um, and Spanish America, and then there were colonies like um, what is now the Dominican Republic that that struggled to find out what to do, which thing they wanted to do, and sometimes the Dominican Republic went through a period where it. It tried to be independent, and then it tried to join the United States. It tried to join France. It, it, it tried to join England. Nobody wanted it. And finally, Spain took them back, but then they didn't <clears throat> only for a couple of years. And so Santo Domingo kept trying to recolonize itself as one of the ways to stabilize itself in the world. And, and so the, these stories were, the, the range of the stories was very fascinating to me because we have tended to take independence for granted. And that kind of, that piece kind of is a companion with uh, the last piece in the last chapter in the book, which is about the independence-minded anti-colonial thinkers of the 1960s and 70s, most in Africa, people like Nkrumah and, and Walter Rodney and Granada and Amilcar Cabral and a whole lot, Samir Amin, a lot of people, where that moment of independence was another one of, of radical uncertainty about futures and people arguing for visions that in fact ended up not corresponding at, in any way to what actually happened. So those two independence moments kind of go together and there was kind of an invitation at the end to go back and reread the anti-colonial thinkers, um, especially of the post-World War II and uh, see what they say to us now. <laughs> hmm. Yeah, so another, another kind of focus of significant focus of um, your essays is the legacy of this post-colonial turn in the academy, including its kind of valuable contributions and the still sort of very much active imperative to sort of decolonize across various contexts and disciplines. So um, could you briefly touch on the arguments that drove the anti-colonial analysis and how it can inform political questions of of a planetary scale today? Well, you know, that's a great question. And I I haven't finished answering that yet. I think um, what a lot of those thinkers were were thinking from very strongly Marxist frameworks and thinking in terms of productive forces and um, who and and 
the inter- they were thinking about they were doing diagnosis of colonialism as an interruption of the productive forces of a country or of a place, of an economy, and um, the redirection of of, of uh, those resources. And they were diagnosing the way that um, so what became under development was produced by ideologies of development. It was not the lack of development. It was a byproduct of development projects. And that kind of thinking, it's not that we haven't, we don't know it, but we haven't, it, it got displaced anti-colonial thought by post-colonial thought that kind of wanted to look at hybridity and the mix and, and um, mestizaje and so on. And um, so I, I actually don't, I don't know where that, that chapter's on the short side because I'm just not sure where it takes us. Although it took me back, interestingly, it took me back to the 16th century and the, Maya resistance to Spanish then, which took very took similar forms. Um, so that piece was something to be pursued. So I'm still I'm still uh, part way through that reconsideration of those anti-colonial thinkers. I just think we probably shouldn't have forgotten them, because after all, for them, like the problem is capitalism, you know, and um, and I think the problem is capitalism. Yeah. You know? <laughs> And this yeah. endlessly expansive just machine that devours, you know. So, yeah. Um, so I, I think I think we've we've co- managed to cover quite a lot of um, material um, in your book, and it hopefully that will kind of inspire some of our listeners to go and seek it out. Um, so, just as a kind of a final question, um, do you have any new projects on the horizon? Um, and if so, could you tell us a little bit about them? Well. Um, Oh my goodness, I uh, I did um, in the in the first it, starting in two thousand, I began to do a lot of work on language and globalization, and um, I started working on what the question of what would a a geolinguistic imagination look like, and um, I was interested in not just what is the impact of globalization on languages and on their distribution and endangering and so on. I was interested in that, but I was also interested in the flip side of that question, which is how does, how do specific features of human language, the way it's learned, the way that's transmitted, um, the way, how, how do specific features of human languages have, how have they shaped Global, global relationships, how do they shape what's possible and impossible and what's easy and hard? And, um, you know, if you think of the role of interpreters in Afghanistan, for example, in these struggles, without those interpreters, those how the thing has a completely different configuration. So I was just interested in how the particular features of human language and the way, the way it's transmitted, the way it, it exists... Um, the fact that no one can migrate and leave their language behind, it has to go with you, all these kinds of, it's just how they give shape to this, this, um, this thing, to the geo. So that's one uh, project that's sitting in, in um, waiting for me to um, pick it up. And, um, and of course, then I'm thinking a lot of, as we all are about ecological catastrophe. And my question there is, um, how is uh, is sort of the pessimist's question, which is, what is the challenge of living? If you if you if you assume the worst, what is the challenge of living that? In other words, if indeed we're looking at the slow demise of carbon-based life on the planet, there there are incredible choices about how to live that. Um, or if we're looking at mass death and extinction, which we are, how that to me, it, it, it's, I don't reject, I don't, I don't think it, it needs, requires falling into a, a cloud of despair. It requires thinking about what are the challenges of the, the, the psychic challenges, the political challenges, the aesthetic challenges, the ethical and moral challenges of living a process like that. And, 
it's I'm fine. I'm fascinated by that in a way that's not morbid. Actually, it's really curious and intriguing to me to think about um, people having the power to just the way you can die well or badly. Right? We've all we've seen people die badly and die well, and this and so I, I think this can be done well or badly. And what would it mean to do it? better or worse, you know? So that's kind of the way that I'm thinking about the, uh, the environmental catastrophe narrative that seems to be our, our grand narrative right now. <laughs> mm, yeah. Um, well, thank you for that. Those are really sort of big, big questions, important questions. Um, and yeah, good luck with all your kind of future projects. Um, it sounds really fascinating. Um, so yeah, thank you so much for taking the time to speak with me today, Mary Louise. Thank you for reading the book <laughs> so well. 